welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's Scary Movie Month episode because I'm joined by a very special guest, a returning guest to the podcast, here to talk about all things Scored to Death and The Gate. Please welcome back to the show after too long an absence, Mr. Blake Fischera. Hi, Blake. Hey, man. Good to see you. <laughs> yeah, you too. How's, how's everything going? Well, it's been uh, it's been really busy, but yeah. uh, good, but good, good. So, all right, we I, I was I wanted to list off all your credentials. We uh, he's the author of Scored to Death One and Two, the host of Scored to Death, the podcast, the host of the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers podcast, which just recently made a triumphant return, and uh, and now a filmmaker as well. Well, you know, that was always the goal. I mean, uh, I've been, I got sidetracked by working in television for the last 20 years, but, uh, you know, it was always, the goal was always to make movies. So, uh, now I'm finally doing it. That's very, very exciting. So you have a, correct me, correct me when I make mistakes here, a crowdfunding campaign for, uh, of the documentary version of scored to death. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, well, you know, being someone who uh, always aspired to make movies and loves movies, the kind of the plan was always to make Scored to Death into a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm kind of glad I waited because doing Scored to Death 2 and then doing Scored to Death the podcast and all that stuff, I feel like not only have I made, you know, stronger relationships with the people from the first book, but I have good friends friendly relationships with composers from the second book for people that don't know the score to death books are kind of a compilation of in-depth interviews with uh, film music composers who have made significant contributions to the horror genre. And uh, so I think it's, it's kind of good that I waited. Uh, So now I'm trying to turn, I mean, it's trying to turn the books into a, a documentary, but it's more, just trying to further explore the craft of film scoring in horror movies, because uh, the plan is not to make the movie an abridged version of the books. It's the plan is to kind of use documentary and the cinematic medium to explore the craft in a way that I wasn't able to in the books. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, if you happen to be listening to this between September 27th and November 1st of 2022, uh, we're running a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, the title of the movie is Score to Death, The Dark Art of Scary Movie Music. Um, we've shot the first few interviews, but we've really only just begun. So uh, we're hoping to gain enough support to keep going and make something really special out of the movie. Uh, so far, we have uh, Harry Manfredini, who's done Friday the 13th, Charles Bernstein, who's done A Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Charlie Clouser, who does the Saw movies, uh, Holly Amber Church, who's a great composer. She's done films like uh, Open 24 Hours and Dark Light. Uh, you know, so many. We haven't been able to interview even all the people that have signed on so far. Richard Band, who's done Reanimator and mm-hmm. Castle Freak and From Beyond. Um, Alan Howarth, who worked with Carpenter and has scored his own movies, as well as many of the Halloween sequels. Uh, John Massari. So we're building up a really awesome uh, lineup of composers to teach us about uh, scoring 
horror movies. And uh, that's kind of it. I mean, the one thing I will add about the Kickstarter campaign is that the generosity of people who love horror film music and uh, appreciated the books and are excited about a documentary about it um, have just, you know, just the support of the generosity has been great in that offered with the Kickstarter campaign is a limited edition album on both uh, record LP, vinyl LP and CD of a compilation of horror music, horror movie themes, newly recorded by uh, a kind of all-star cast of uh, musicians and composers, including Alan Howarth and Steve Moore from the band Zombie, the band Voyager, the band Anima Morte, uh, Will and Brooke Blair, who are great composers, uh, Wojciech Golchewski, who's a great composer, you know, just a really great, uh, amazing lineup of people have decided to lend their hand to help support the movie by recording themes for an album that we're going to offer exclusively in the crowdfunding campaign. So, that and is if you, so cool. yeah, and if you happen to miss the campaign, you listen to this late, and you can always uh, follow me on social media at Score to Death, and you can join the mailing list at uh, scoretodeath.com and still keep uh, up to date with everything that's going on with the film. That's amazing. Congratulations. I'm super excited to see it. Yeah. Well, uh, it's going to take a while, but yeah. uh... <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine why. Making movies is easy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm, you know, I'm excited about it. You know, it's, uh, I was trying to get it going as a television thing because I work in TV mm-hmm. primarily, uh, but uh, decided to just, if I wanted it done right, that I needed to do it myself. So right. um, we're going to go for it, see what happens. And hopefully uh, people will come along for the ride. Oh, I'm sure they will. I know so many horror fans are so interested in that side of the genre, you know, into the music and buying all the scores on vinyl and reading your books. And so I have to believe there's a lot of people who would love to see a documentary like this. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's very cool. I didn't know about the exclusive album. That is very, very, uh, that's very cool. Yeah. Well, the, the, Kind of the thought behind that was, you know, a lot of documentaries, films, they promise a soundtrack release, but mm-hmm. uh, or score release. And really, I have no idea how much people are going to care about this. So not knowing how much money I can raise with a crowdfunding campaign, I don't know if I can afford a, a, a right. an original score for it. Right. So I, I'm trying, you know, I'm being very careful not to promise things that I, I don't know if I can deliver. So uh, I thought, you know, but people that would be interested in this will want something music related, mm-hmm. will be record collectors and soundtrack collectors. So, uh, you know, the way I wrote the books, the mentality of like, hey, let me just send out emails and ask. It never hurts to ask. <laughs> and and that's how the books got written. That's how the books got published. And I uh, figured I'll just start reaching out to musicians I either know or love uh, uh, and ask them if they'd be willing to support us. Um, just a great lineup of people. Richard Christie, who... Uh, really? He's he's doing something for, for it. Uh, yeah, uh, famed hey, heavy metal drummer. I'll play drums. <laughs> I said, "Hey, bub, you wanna?" 
You just had to promise him a framed picture of Brad Pitt from Interview with the Vampire. Yes, I promised him a uh, poster from, uh, I can't even remember the movie. What's the other one? The fishing movie that they did. Oh, that's right. A river runs through it. <laughs> river runs through it. Huh? <laughs> um. Well, that's awesome. I wish you all the success in the world, and I look forward to uh, the documentary. We are also here to talk about a movie of your choosing, Blake. More importantly. more Not, not more importantly. <laughs> maybe as importantly. Uh, um, we were trying to think of a movie to talk about for October, and you threw out The Gate from 1987, which I had to confess I had never seen. I did not grow up with this movie. I missed the Vestron Blu-ray. Uh, thankfully, it is streaming as of this recording on Tubi, so I was able to watch it very easily. God bless Tubi. Um, so what was it that made you pick The Gate? Well, you know, I think our last uh, go-around wolf talking about movies was uh, werewolf movies of 1985. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the best year for werewolf movies ever. <laughs> In that and, there uh, were two. <laughs> and uh, it was a walk down uh, memory lane uh, for nostalgia for me anyway. For We talked about Teen Wolf and Silver Bullet. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know. I just, uh, it, I just, lo I love the gate. And uh, I was trying to think of something, you know, you've obviously covered many a horror movie on your show. And sure. uh uh, so it was like, clearly I got to think a little bit outside the box <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, uh, what movies would I want to talk about? I, yeah. so I said, uh, what do you think about the gate? So that, that was really all the, all the, uh, strategy on that one. All right. Well, no, that's, listen, it's a good strategy. Um, I was really surprised watching the movie that I had never seen it because this seems like exactly the kind of horror movie I should have seen. I would have been about 10 when it came out and it's exactly the kind of horror movie that I should have watched like every day on cable because it's such a good like gateway horror movie, especially for a young boy living in the suburbs, which is exactly what this movie is about uh, who, you know, accidentally opens a gate to hell in his backyard, which who among us hasn't once or twice? Yeah, you know, it's the suburbs. Exactly. What else are we supposed to do? <laughs> One would argue drugs you're and already. Alcohol? Come on. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, young Stephen Dorff plays, uh, pre chain smoking Stephen Dorff plays the young. Well, boy. we don't know. We don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Um, you know who I was so surprised to see show up in this movie was Kelly Rowan, or Rowan, uh, who I knew from, like, I think the OC. Was she on the OC? Yeah, she was on the OC. She's in Scream 3. She's in, like, the opening of Scream 3. Her hair is something in this movie. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's something to behold, for sure. <laughs> it's like the opposite of a mullet in that it's pure party in front. It's all party in the front. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going out in every direction. She plays one of the friends, Lori Lee. Um, but uh, 
Well, I, here's, here's, here's what I said. Since you seem to be, have trouble figuring out how to get into this, <laughs> I will say I'm curious to see what you think because, you know, I see people on social media talk about it and they ask about, like, is it good? Should I watch it? Or they watch it and they don't like it. You know, I, I think, you know, it's an oddity in that it's a movie that was made as a serious horror movie for children. And so I think it runs the risk of had you not seen it when you were a child, that it's going to fall a little bit flat for you. So uh, I think we should just start with like, you know, did you like it? And uh, if not, what what didn't work for you about it? I would say that I liked it overall. I I felt like it took quite a while to get going. It's almost half the movie before it really introduces any of the horror elements, which normally I'm fine with, like a movie that's setting up characters and setting up atmosphere. Um, This movie is more just like he's a kid in the suburbs whose parents are away for 45 minutes and his sister's throwing a party. And then at around the 45 minute mark, all hell starts to break loose, literally. Um, And once that kicked in, I was I was way on board um, I don't have a ton of experience with the film's director, whose name I will mispronounce, Tibor Takix. Is that right? I but Sounds right. Okay. <laughs> Let's go with that. Uh, I have seen his movie, I, Madman, which is like a favorite of mine, but this is the only the second Tibor movie I've seen. Um, so I knew I was in good hands and I was patient with the movie. Um, the only thing I remembered from growing up and it's a a very sort of iconic image is the zombie that falls over and then turns into all the little subspecies monsters. Yeah. Which is a great effect and very memorable. So when it happened, it was, I had my Leo DiCaprio like pointing at the TV (laughs) moment. Yeah. Um, But I would say I liked the movie overall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, for me, it's obviously it's very planted in, you know, the mid 80s. Uh, yeah. But I don't know, aside from kind of the pacing issues that you kind of mentioned, I feel like it it for me anyway, it holds up pretty well. I had the benefit of seeing it uh, as a child in mm-hmm. the late 80s. So, uh, you know, I obviously have a very different relationship with it than you do. Um, the imagery of the the effects and all that stuff but just like has one of those things that just like really sticks with you when you're a kid and i think it's what kind of really what i love about this movie and if you listen to tibor talk about it what excited him about it is that you know art and film and stuff you know they're like uh imagination fuel for children and mm-hmm. especially horror and you know we grew up in a really fun time for horror uh to be that for young people you know in that things like people like characters like freddie and jason were you know essentially rock stars by the late 80s and there was a ton of television that was horror related, you know, the, one of my favorite series of all time, werewolf is starting up right around the time that this movie comes out. And uh, there was, you had tales from the dark side and re new versions of twilight zone and 
Hitchcock Presents, Outer Limits, a reboot of that's right around the corner, Tales from the Crypt, all that stuff. So, uh, you know, we lived in a very, uh, like, fun time for horror. And not to mention that uh, I've come to realize that, you know, like, little beings you know or things that because there's things about this movie with the with the minions that uh remind me of the little guy in cat's eye and that's also something that has <laughs> kind of stuck with me forever so uh it's just there's a lot of things that just the hand in the the eye and the hand and yeah there's just a lot of imagery that just like kind of ever since i saw it uh as a kid has always just kind of like just stuck with me and i think it's one of the reasons that you know, I, I've kind of loved this movie for so long. Well, I totally get what you're saying in terms of it being like a serious horror movie that's aimed at children. And we didn't get too many of those. We got a handful of them in the 80s, stuff like Lady in White and Something Wicked This Way Comes. The Gate is probably even a little bit more intense than both of those. Uh, and I think it really works on that level. Like I said, it, it, it's a movie I can't believe missed me as a kid because this is the exact kind of thing I would have really gravitated towards. Um, and I watched it and half the time I was really thinking of uh, my friend Jackson Stewart's movie Beyond the Gates from a couple of years ago, which is clearly an influence. Uh, this movie was clearly an influence on his movie in terms of like, oh, we opened the door to hell in the basement. I know his is a little drawing a little bit more from like Italian horror, yeah. but there's a lot of the imagery in the gate was bringing up images from beyond the gates for me. Yeah. Yeah. And this also, you know, the eighties was also such a great time for like kids on an adventure. Yes. <laughs> type, yeah. Type movies. And this, you know, we've had a resurgence of that with, uh, you know, stranger things and, and, uh, you know, the kind of reimagining of it, for movie theaters but uh you know this was the 80s was really a great time for that and i in kind of like reflection i wonder it's if it's because you know we were kind of at the tail end of generation x and so we were like the last round of like real latchkey kids where we really were able to just <laughs> kind of like ride our bikes anywhere and just right. be back in time for dinner and right, right. nobody cared what we were doing <laughs> or come home from school and be by yourself until your parents uh, showed up. And, and uh, so like, yeah, we had time to, uh, in the freedom to go looking for a, uh, you know, buried tre or lost treasure or uh, save the world from gates of hell or, <laughs> uh, help an alien find his way home. And this movie taps into all that in terms of like parents are away and here's the adventures we're going to get into. You know, a lot of, there's certainly like, uh, I, you know, you just referenced ET or poltergeist movies where like the parents are still present and, or very much involved in the story. But a lot of my favorite of the, these eighties movies are, you know, movies that exist almost in a world without parents and the gate certainly falls into that subgenre. Yeah. I mean, I think they even, there was even talk at some point where there just wouldn't be any adults in the movie at all. But... <laughs> People were too confused by that. They had to <laughs> add a scene where the parents leave for the weekend. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a great look. There's two ways. There's there's like there's only really two ways that horror works for like with children in movies. It's that the parents aren't around or there's no adults around Mm -hmm. or that's that the the adults don't believe them. I mean, that's really right. (laughs) The two uh, conventions. And so uh, in in this case, they went with, uh, Hey kids, we're leaving them for three days (laughs) and uh, don't use the stove. Don't play with matches and don't open up the doorway to hell. (laughs) Um, what do you think of the, the effects in the movie? Well, I think they're really the unsung hero of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Randall William Cook, uh, who's, who kind of designed the effects and was the effects supervisor. I mean, he's, he's the real hero of this movie. Uh, I think it's, you know, there aren't a ton of them when you, you know, like you said, you know, it's, there's a good half of the movie occurs before anything really starts happening. So it's not like the movie's jam packed with them, but I think when they show up, they it's one of the great underappreciated effects movies of all time. In my opinion, like they're just so good Uh, and they hold up for the most part still really well. And, uh, you know, most of them are done with forced perspective, which wasn't being done a ton in the late eighties. Uh, so it, it's just like they look great, and uh, it's amazing, just like how good they hold up, in my opinion. Yeah, all of the all the little monsters, and I I will admit to because I've watched a lot of Full Moon. Sometimes I have had my full of uh, little monsters, but in this movie they really work the force perspective and stop motion. Uh, I think is like first rate. And I really, I was ready for that shot that I remembered that I talked about earlier where the zombie falls over and turns into all the little guys. And I was ready for it to not live up to my memory of it. And then seeing it again today, I was like, Oh, Holy shit. I don't know how they did that. <laughs> That's an amazing <laughs> shot. Yeah. I can see why that, it was in all the trailers. Yeah. It really, that one specifically because it's the, flashiest of the right. uh that so it's it's kind of the one that get played up and it's the one that we remember but even just like the the, the minions by her feet when she goes outside to investigate and then they chase after her and run up the stairs behind her like those all that stuff it's a little more subtle i mean it's right. a little more of like sleight of hand so that's not as flashy but it's all incredibly gorgeous to look at yeah yeah for sure i liked i you know I think, unfortunately, one of my least appealing traits is my uh, ability to my nostalgia for, you know, practical effects of the 80s and uh, my sort of disinterest in the ability of computers to create anything that feels just completely intangible. So I'm watching the climax of this movie where Stephen Dorff is sort of taking on the giant minion uh the big demon at the end and it's all done you know with a puppet that's like stop motion and it's not pulling me out of the movie at all if anything i'm like more invested because i'm like look he's fighting a real thing this is an amazing effect they don't do this anymore you know i have all these thoughts in my head and i don't want to just be the guy who's like oh i miss when they did it this way and i i miss practical effects because it's a drum that i'm beating over and over again but movies like the gate 
make me miss practical effects. Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, I don't know if you watched the industrial light magic show on Disney plus. I have not yet, but, um, you know, it's, it's, I really loved it. Um, but it, when it gets to the computer stuff, uh, the last couple of episodes obviously start to focus on Jurassic Park and post Jurassic Park. And, uh, you know, and when they start talking about the computer effects, it, it almost becomes like propaganda for CGI. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, but is it really that, like, does it, like, is, can you really do anything? I mean, right. there is, and, and look, no doubt it's gotten better, you know, uh, Somehow it started at the peak <laughs> of Jurassic Park. Yeah, it, it almost hasn't improved from there, right? And then it got worse, and then it right. came back around to it starting to get better again. Uh, when I watched the the last, um, the most recent Jurassic Park movie, I was like, yeah, the, the dinosaurs and everything, they're great, but they can't even get me to believe that this guy's actually riding a horse, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Like, at least you could have done is have him ride a horse for Christ's sake. I mean, that's that's where it fucks with me because I forget what I was watching. Maybe I was watching like Confess Fletch, and they're driving, and it's they're just clearly in front of a green screen. And I'm like, they couldn't drive a car. We can't. We're at the point now where it's just it's easier to green screen like effects out the window than it is to actually just drive a car and set up a rig. So. I don't like the, I don't want to say laziness because obviously people work very hard at creating these effects, uh, but there's this tendency to fall back on certain things, you know, because it's cheaper or because it gives them more shooting days because then they're able to just add it in post. Um, that, that, bums me out you know and i was was the ilm show i saw something floating around on twitter with like an early test of a jurassic park effect where it was like stop motion did that come from that ilm show uh probably i know there's foot there's footage that phil tippett did that uh you know i've seen over the years um where they did like kind of the tests yeah Sure. There's like a, they kind of juxtapose what Phil Tippett did as a test for like the raptor scene in the kitchen. And then they show you like what they ended up doing. And, you know, look, I think the the Jurassic Park stuff still looks, you know, really good compared to some of the stuff we saw. Yeah. But I don't know what happened. But I think part of it is, you know, and like, I don't want this. episode to end up just being like, us yelling at clouds <laughs> the problem with but there is i think look great art and especially when it comes from i think when it comes from movies we like the problem solving is where a lot of like the really magical things about cinema comes from you know like had cgi existed when they made back to the future like there would have been no DeLorean. There would have been like no clock tower. It right, would have been right. like this race to to, a, to a, an atomic bomb test in a, in a refrigerator. And there was, and it was like that, like, we can't do that. What can we do? That sets up like the clock of mm-hmm. the, that movie of like, and it's just like, it's, 
it, and I think that's just like the most, the biggest blatant example. And I think when it comes to something like the gate, it's like, okay, like we have this much money, this many shooting dates, like how can we do something that's going to be good? You know, like that's going to live up to what we want it to be. And, uh, you know, Randall, Randy Cook, like brought, you know, Tibor and uh, Michael Nannan, who wrote Nankin, who wrote the script to his house and showed them Darby O'Gill and the little people and was like, I, th- like, I think this is how we can do a lot of this. And had they were just like, oh, we'll just like do this all in post and we'll figure it out later. Right. <laughs> like, I think we would have been like robbed of some like really cool artistry. I think that's. You know, like everything from, you know, the reason why the film noir movies are the way they are is because like they were B movies shot on a low budget. They couldn't talk about sex. So they had to talk in innuendos. They couldn't, they didn't have time to light it great. So they light it, they lit it in shadows, (laughs) you know, with like uh, Venetian blinds in front of it. You know, every, it's always been a staple of, some of the things that we love about movies come from the the restriction and the problem solving right, that right. they had to come up with. And when you, and nowadays it just feels like maybe people are like, I don't know, filmmakers, like, you know, just like really the whole push is like, now you can do anything. And it's like, well, you can, but <laughs> <laughs> Just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> I think that's why so many of us gravitate too towards the indie horror space because they are sort of attempting to problem solve. Um, they are trying to be creative. And, and again, I'm saying this, I haven't yet seen, maybe by the time this comes out, I will have seen, but I haven't yet seen Barbarian. I haven't seen Pearl. I haven't seen a couple of like movies that are supposed to be among the best horror movies of the year. So I'm not throwing any shade at any of the current horror movies out in the marketplace right now, but like um, the indie movies, you know, it's like they're trying their best to stretch a budget. The problem is their budgets are now so low that we can't get anything like the gate because there is no, there's no horror movie that's made for, you know, $6 million. There's no, it's like 500,000 or yeah. 20 million, you know, uh, or, well, or it's more. A, it's, it's, it's the uh, double-edged sword of uh, streaming and oversaturation. And you right. know, back in the day, it was like when you made a movie, uh, you know, you weren't just, you just weren't competing with, although I think, when I'm looking back, you know, this movie comes out in 1987. Uh, I did look back and be like, well, 1987 was a, was a hell of a year for like imaginative horror. Like Hellraiser came out that year. Evil Dead 2. Of course, we had like Lost Boys in Near Dark. We got yeah. Dream Warriors, you know, the Nightmare on Street 3. Prince of Darkness, which is arguably Carpenter's like weirdest and most imaginative uh horror movie predator monster squad street trash angel heart uh bad taste you know so it's it's a really Jaws the revenge (laughs) it's a hell of a year for like really like out there horror and some of it just like really uh you know swings for the fences and i think succeeds and uh the gate obviously much lower budget film done canadian 
tax shelter. Um, but yeah, you know, even though obviously there are so many horror movies that came out in 1987, it's still not kind of like the glut of movies that we get now, which, right. you know, it's like I said, that that's, it's great, but it's also a little bit problematic when you get to those kinds of things. It's just really only so much money to go around. <laughs> <laughs> Um, gosh, I didn't realize 87 was so stacked and it's like, I've heard this theory posited before that what's great about the eighties is that the movies had two things going for them. They had imagination and they had the budgets to realize some of that imagination. And I think that's part of what's missing from a lot of horror now i won't say that the imagination is necessarily missing but i think there's so many filmmakers who just don't have the money to realize exactly what they want to do on screen um even a low budget movie like the gate which only had six million to work with again sort of cleverly stacks it all in the back half and finds smart ways to create the special effects um so that they can you know, stretch their budget to the max. And I think, you know, now just from the filmmakers, the few filmmakers that I've talked to, you've obviously talked to way more, but like their budgets are so low that they're really limited in what they can do. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's, you know, it's tough because, you know, in some ways it's like, obviously the movies of the eighties needed more money because film was a lot more expensive. Right. Uh, right. So, you know, there's that argument, you right. know, sure. <laughs> like, you know, when I started making uh, short films and stuff, we were working on 16 millimeter and it was like, I needed to sell my car to be able <laughs> to make like a 20 minute movie, you know? Uh so nowadays, like, yeah, cameras are expensive, but once you have it, like, that's, you know, it's not a continue, you're not continuing that expense, um, you know, and memory cards and whatnot, but it's different than like, I can only shoot 10 minutes of film and then right. I have to get it processed and, and then we have to, you know, get a, <laughs> have to get the, the negative uh, cut and we have to get work prints and then prints. So, I mean, it was in, in some ways it was a more expensive art form. Uh, then so you kind of needed to have budgets that would that would you know allow for that uh but i think unfortunately it's now it's just everybody like in some ways like technology is is hurting things you know even when i talk to composers it's like you know the technology is great in that they really can have access to any sound they want and they can do things they can almost you know in a lot of cases realistically create an, an orchestra sound in the computer like everything's become great but because of that the ability to do that the in a lot especially in lower budget movies mm-hmm. the, the music budgets have gotten even smaller so you know it's unfortunately it's this weird like reverse trickle down effect it's like this trickle down effect of, of poverty that's <laughs> sweeping, sweeping through uh you know independent filmmaking and even you know I, like you know a guy like joe Bashar has done a lot of 
studio horror movies. And so mm-hmm. he gets to work with the orchestras and stuff. But uh, a lot of the people I talk to, unfortunately, don't get to work with those kinds of budgets. And um, yeah, it's just it's it's unfortunate. Um, I mean, obviously, there's still some great there's still great movies being made, uh, yes. but it's just a different it's a different animal than it was then it's a it's a very different business all around from the technology to the distribution it's it's a almost a completely different uh industry than it was then yeah i i guess i struggle a little bit with like trying to embrace the business that it is instead of just lamenting what it was and i'm sure that's just a, a side effect of getting older and you know i our parents probably went through the same thing whether it came to movies or music or just the way society runs or who knows but uh, i feel my age most when it comes to movies and i i don't want to just be the person who's looking backwards um, because there's certainly still plenty of stuff coming out that i enjoy that i like that i embrace uh but in particular when it comes to genre stuff i do find myself missing some of the the imagination and some of the resources of those those 80s movies that we grew up on yeah well i also think people of our generation and the and the generation immediately younger than us you know the generations that are kind of of the age of starting to be able to produce their own product i think we're in this we're nostalgic in a, in a way that is different than, you know, like our parents were, I mean, clearly there was, cause you have the eighties is full of like that generation looking back at their childhood from the seventies into the eighties. That's why things like happy days exists and right. Greece right. and, and why we get remakes of the blob and the thing and the fly and we have creep show. And uh, so clearly like that, it, it 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 it's universal but i think in some weird way you know the 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 way we collect things uh like i don't know i don't know what your parents were like but i can't like i just my can't imagine my dad like having you know like universal monster figures you know <laughs> as, a, as an adult and you know there's like there was the priorities were different for uh generations you know, before ours. And I think part of that love of nostalgia, it, it's obviously great, but it also in some cases kind of hinders creativity because some people are now, you know, we're everybody's like wanting to make the things they grew up with instead right. of not yes. everybody, but many right. people are wanting to, to cash, to, to live in, in their imagination from 1980, from the eighties, yes. instead of, you know, pushing with new ideas. Right. And I mean, one could argue that, you know, there's only so many ideas. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and and every time a movie comes out, that's one more idea that you check off the list. (laughs) No, that's definitely happened to me when I've done like um, some of these virtual festivals, like since the pandemic started, I get to like my fourth movie that opens with a synth score and a John Carpenter font. And I'm just like, Jesus, can we do something new that isn't just looking backwards, you know? Uh, so there is plenty of that going around as well. But uh, I mean, in regards to the gate, I think 
you know, it's, uh, I mean, there's definitely shades of something like Silver Bullet, which, as you know, I have a great fondness for. Yeah. Um, you know, there is, I think for the most part, you know, like everybody's good in it. Uh, you know, there's always a danger with children kind of just end up being annoying in a movie, but I think, uh, everybody kind of delivers. I think it's an interesting take on some kind of like weird fairy tale. Like, you know, like it's definitely very much embracing, uh, you know, what fairy tales were about, which is like, you know, stuff for children <laughs> yeah, right. and i think horror is an important part for uh of of growing up and learning you know what to be scared of learning that being scared is okay and you can and and that you could be safe and uh you know it's an interesting tale about which i didn't really picked up on until this time that i feel like a lot of this is fueled by like the guilt that glenn feels for killing those moths <laughs> <laughs> So it's a it's a weird it's a movie about uh, fear of of abandonment and yeah. he's watching his sister pull away from him and his parents are off doing their thing and uh you know he just wants to fly his rockets with his sister but she's not interested in that anymore and uh it's it's a, just I don't know it's a weird movie and uh as I get older you know obviously there are weirder movies and there's different uh, kinds of weird, but it, it's a movie that's, as I get older, weird, you know, that, 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 that's a, it has a currency to it. That is very valuable to me Absolutely. in, in films now. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, not when I was, you know, Probably just when I was just a little bit older than Glenn is in this movie, I moved to a suburban neighborhood that wasn't all that different than the one he lives in. And, uh, you know, there's just things that are, I don't know what you have kids. I don't. So I don't know what kids do now, but I, it, it would appear to me that things like digging holes in the backyard isn't as big of a deal now as it once <laughs> no, <was>. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for geodes is not the <laughs> doesn't pass the time like it used to. <laughs> I spent an entire summer once. We lived across the street from like a park, and I spent most of a summer digging the same hole. I don't really know what my end goal was. I don't remember that. I just remember digging a massive hole. I think like we had it in our minds that we were going to trap some sort of bad guy that we invented was in our neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. But we, we did not open banana it. leaves over it. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I'd seen Predator already, and it gave me some ideas, you know. <laughs> you know that David Nankin, the writer, talks about how, like, when he was growing up, he had his best friend was named Terry. And when he moved in to that neighborhood, the first thing, when he first time he met Terry, Terry was like, you know, your house is haunted because some workman died and they balled him up into the wall of your house. And uh, he talks about how they once spent a whole summer trying to dig to China in Terry's backyard until uh, like the garden, his fa Terry's father's gardener, like fell into the hole and then sued his parents. Oh, my God. <laughs> Very different outcome than this movie. <laughs> More of a domestic drama, I guess, than uh, opening a gate to hell. But 
But, you know, like I, you know, I think the character of Glenn, you know, he, Stephen Dorff does a good job of, of being likable enough. I, I do genuinely feel his pain sometimes. Like yeah. when, when like his sister's throwing out the, the toys and stuff and he's like, well, but you said I could have these. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I totally get it. And Glenn also has like the, the, uh, less glamorous job of also being like the skeptic to Terry, which is like, yeah, but this is just a record album. <laughs> you know, right, like, right. Um, it's all stuff that, you know, look, has it been done before? Sure. Has it been done better? Yeah, probably. But I feel <laughs> like it works. It works in the context of this movie. It definitely works. And I, I was watching the movie, paying attention to Stephen Dorff, especially because I'd never seen him, you know, this young before. And he is really good. I was recognizing a lot of my childhood self in him and was like, oh, I could totally see why he went on to, like, have a big career. You know, he's a yeah. really good child actor. Um, and then I was beating myself up at the end because when he launches the rocket at the demon, I was like, I, how did I not see that coming? They've been setting up that rocket this entire <laughs> movie. He keeps looking at that rocket box. And somehow I didn't figure like, oh, that's definitely Chekhov's rocket. He's going to shoot that at a demon. It's embarrassing, man. Yeah, well, you know. But that's, that's those are the things that... Those are the magical times, though, right? I mean, those are the... When you like, I remember the first time I saw a <laughs> very strange segue, <laughs> like the movie Color of Night. Sure, and it's so clear who that right. oh like, yes. that, ca- that character is. Yes, but I went along with that ride, and I wasn't like I you know I didn't have like that you know Zolly shot in, in Jaws happen. <laughs> <laughs> Where shutters on the beach, where it was like the reveal. I wasn't like, oh my god, but it was like, oh yeah, I guess I should have saw that. <laughs> uh, I rewatched that movie recently and was just like, is it supposed to be a reveal, or are we supposed to know the whole time? Because it does seem there's another one, um, a Graydon Clark movie called Dance Macabre. Have you seen that? I don't think I've seen that one, no. Oh, boy. Robert England gets to do a similar thing to Color of Night, and you could totally see why he signed on to do it, because it's like, oh, I get a chance to play another gender. And uh, it's just so obvious, the entire movie, so you're just waiting for the characters to figure out the thing that you figured out from the moment you saw him buried under makeup. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, you end up kind of liking those movies. Because, like, oh, yeah, like, I don't know why I was fooled, but it got me. I was in. Oh, yeah, for sure. I I went along for the ride. Yeah. So, you know, like, yeah, of course. Obviously, the Rockets are going to do something in this movie. But, uh, you know, trying to – did you have a rocket when you were a kid? I did not have a rocket, no. I remember my dad got me and my brother one one Christmas – and we only did it like once or twice because, yeah, you know, like you have to f- basically you put like a shotgun shield, <laughs> like gunpowder into the bottom of it and you fire it off and then that's it. Right. You know, like, you know, you fire it off, you watch it go up and then it comes down. You're like, All right. Pack it up. Time to go home. <laughs> <laughs> 
I had one of those little like red plastic rockets that you filled with water and then pump full of air. Oh, mm-hmm. and it shoots up like maybe twenty five feet, and that's I guess a thrill. I don't know. That's but... that's that's still exciting. Yeah, it's something, right? It wouldn't work against a giant demon, I don't think. <laughs> well, you know, probably not. I think <laughs> no. it's the name of the rocket in this one. <laughs> but <clears throat> uh, Terry, you know, another interesting character, you know, feeling the loss of a parent, uh, you know, his bedroom. I mean, I don't know if you had, if, if you were a metal kid, but I wasn't, but I had my cousin, Tony, uh, who was uh, older than both my older brother and myself, like his bedroom was like, you know, a, another world, like going there and it was like Aussie posters and it's like, nice. it was like definitely part of like my horror education which is going in and, and like it was like oh and go to tony's room and it was like, <laughs> it was scary it was like bark of the moon and oh yeah uh, you know like so you know terry you know i have a soft spot in my heart for terry the young aspiring metal uh metal head um my brother was a metal guy and we shared a room so i definitely grew up with a lot of metal in my life and i still like can remember the lead singer's name of Cinderella because I learned it when I was eight from my brother, you know, and I yeah. was taking up valuable real estate in my brain. <laughs> and because, uh, I don't know, was it like a bunk bed situation? or Yes, like, it was a bunk bed uh, situation. Because I would say if it was, you know, like a dorm room situation where it was like one side or the other, then it's like you're the one stuck looking at his side of the room the whole right. time. <laughs> no, I, I definitely, because I looked up to him, I definitely embraced all of the... Ozzy Osbourne and the Quiet Riot and all the until he got into like some of the harder stuff he he was into some band called Crocus <laughs> which okay. I definitely like stared at the album cover because I remember it looking like Nosferatu um I'm trying to look up the name of the album the guy on the album cover, was it just Alive and Screaming? Maybe. I don't know. The guy on the album cover, to me, looked kind of like Nosferatu. Uh, now that I'm looking back at it as an adult, it doesn't really look like Nosferatu. I don't know what I was thinking, but that's my memory of it as a kid. Uh, but he started to get into some metal that, like, I, I it was a bridge too far for me. I couldn't go there he, with him. They were no sacrifice. Is what right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but so few bands are. What do you think... Uh, what's your take on the score for the gate as the, as the horror score expert? Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, a time capsule of 1986 and 87, you know, it's very synth oriented, the kind of like the, I realized now I, I was trying to pinpoint like what that, like the end theme that it's like trying to simulate an orchestra at the end. Mm-hmm. I was like, this sounds like something. And I, I, I know it's like not quite it, but I was like, is it the rocketeer? Like there's something, <laughs> there's some theme that this piece is reminding me of. Uh, it's, you know, I, look, it's, it's effective. It certainly wasn't a score. Sometimes you listen to a score from like the, the eighties that synth, and you're just like, Whoa, like what keyboard, like where they it's supposed to get this keyboard at radio. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that wasn't the case here. Um, it was scored by two guys, Michael yeah. Honig and J. Peter Robinson, who 
um, both kind of worked in the music industry uh, outside of film and went into film. They scored a couple of things together, like Wraith, which was, I think, by the same producers, and the 1988 remake of The Blob, which I have a great fondness for. Yeah. But uh, it was Robinson who went on to, uh, you know, great things in the film industry, like Cocktail and The Wizard. <laughs> oh, boy. And Sino Man, <laughs> uh, Wayne's World, but also West Craven's New Nightmare. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, look, it's of its time, but I think ultimately it's effective. I mean, I think it's, you know, the hard when it comes to film music, it's it's tough because in some ways you could argue like the best scores are the ones you don't notice because right, I mean, they're, that right. means they're fulfilling their job. And I think that's kind of the case for me in this one. Like, I don't really remember it other than that one theme that was like, what is that? That's, that's is that the rocketeer or what? Like what James Horner score does that <laughs> sound like to me? Uh, but, but you know, it, it delivered. Look, the movie is, I mean, I think one of the beautiful things about art in general is that they are kind of a time capsule of when they were made, both uh, technically and, you know, socially or politically and whatnot. Mm. And I think, you know, the gate obviously is no exception. You have the, the synth score, you have crazy 80s hair, uh, you have... You know, by 87, you know, we're getting into some of the satanic panic stuff and the PMRC hearings. I can't remember what years those were. Maybe it was just before this where there's, they want to start censoring or putting a stick. God forbid we put a sticker on a record album to, right. to warn parents. And um, and the heavy and that and it was because of those things that we had things like Black Roses and Trick or Treat and <laughs> and The Gate, like the great uh, subgenre of like metal eighties metal horror, uh, which are always fun in my opinion. Um, this movie is obviously not as, uh, you know, as much a, a, of it as something that is about like a band like black roses, but right. Yeah. It's you know, it's, it, it's, but it's imprint is there, um, you know, using it, you know, it's like the comic books and lost boys. It's like, it's a survival guide. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think it's a great device that, you know, it is, has come back around the, uh, the record album. Right. And the idea of reading through it to learn, uh, you know what it what it is they're up against and how to defeat it is like like i said it's a it, it's a kids horror movie so like obviously a device like that would be ultra cheesy and something that's you know about adults but in the context of like the movie is very is completely from the point of view of 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 you know pre-adolescent you know pre-teens uh you know, everything about it is like through their, through that spectrum, it's through their point of view. So uh, there is like a bit like a, an, an enchantfulness about the movie. And uh, because it's geared towards that audience, you know, even though I think things in the movie are incredibly messed up for 
children in the best way possible uh, at times in that movie in terms of like they're genuinely creepy and they're genuinely kind of like messed up. And of course, they're monsters as adults. It's not something we're, we that scares us. We can appreciate it. Um, I mean, at this point, like very few horror movies actually scare me, right. if any. Right. But as a kid, like those are things that I think are both exciting they're scary and they're safe like i always talked about i was talking about how like i really liked chuck the chucky movies the child's play movies as a kid it was because like they were scary but the idea was so outlandish that like there was a safety to it sure (laughs) you know like like i was scared by it but i like deep down like i knew like like i don't have a good guy doll so i'm okay (laughs) i'm I'm fine (laughs) I don't even have a, you know, uh, my buddy. So uh, I'm good to go. Uh, So I think the gate kind of like, it does like this really great job of being, you know, like genuinely serious and creepy and scary with like really interesting imagery, but also having like a childhood magic about it which mm-hmm. uh i think is one of the reasons why it's always kind of been a, a movie that i've i've appreciated and kind of look back on very uh fondly because it, it's there's it, it tickles like that that nostalgia for uh, uh nerve in a way that um doesn't in some ways in yeah. the way that something like silver bullet does you know it's there's, you know, there's something different than watching, you know, a horror movie that's about adults or right, right. or teenagers who are played by adults. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's just something kind of like wistful and and uh, and uh, majestic mm-hmm. about it, and you know, in a weird way. Yeah, I really, I realizing as we're talking about it, I really like you it sounds like i really like these stories of like horror movies that are like set around kids having to deal with like dark circumstances and not ones that like push the push the line too far i'm not talking about like killer kid movies i'm talking about like movies where the kids are the protagonists not the antagonists uh, like Silver Bullet or like this or like Lady in White, which I had mentioned earlier, which I yeah. think is another really good kind of gateway horror movie. Um, because there is like a, a a nostalgia to it, but there's also kind of a safety to it. There's like a good heartedness to it um, where it's not trying to be like, look how fucked up I can be as a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm, you know, that's those kinds of horror movies aren't really why I get into horror so yeah there's an innocence still yeah, to yeah, them yeah. that um i think we started to lose i mean maybe maybe it was never there but it was definitely uh i think the 80s tried to like went for that you know with with the spielberg era of you know child protagonists and, and right. the adventures of that stuff and i think when we get to something like the gate it's, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's almost like, you know, I don't know, reading, uh, uh, 
what's it? Who was the kid? Did you read um, when you were a kid? Did you read? I'm trying to remember what the author's name was. Bruce Koval, maybe. Ooh, doesn't the, the, mon- the monster's ring. No, it doesn't. There was the, he wrote. He would write these horror books for children for kids that were. Um, I think that was his name. And that is his the, name. Yeah, Bruce Colville. The, <laughs> the big one was the monster's ring. It was about this kid who goes into a. I haven't read it since I was like in fourth grade. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like he goes into an antique shop and he buys a ring, and the ring ends up, you know, turns him into a monster at night or something like that. Um, yeah, like I said, horror is kind of like a really important part of childhood in in a way and and i think like tibor takas was right in that it does it's it is something that fuels the imagination and creativity and i think you can obviously see that in everything we're talking about about you know independent horror now and how there is like this veil of nostalgia over so many things now it's because like they they touch something in us when we were growing up and uh, it, it's things that, uh, you know, we're exercising those demons in a, in a very positive way. I was watching the movie and thinking about like how excited I am to show it to my kids because I do try to show them some horror stuff, but I also don't want to be the dad who fucks up his kids by yeah, showing them okay, too kids, much. We're going to watch Henry portrait of a serial <laughs> killer tonight. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's just important for them to learn. <laughs> that's... Well, I, don't, I can't remember what we talked if we if I ever mentioned this on this show, but one of my like early, not earliest, but a very early memory for me is uh, my parents were divorced when I was, you know, even kind of before I was born. So like, I would visit my dad, and my dad had this crazy thing called a VCR and this thing and cable connected to the television, which my mom didn't have. And we would go to Rite Aid and rent movies. And I remember watching, we rented Christine. So I don't know. That movie's what, 80, 83? Three? Yeah. So I'm going to say it's probably late 83 or 84. We rent Christine. And so I'm like, I don't know, maybe six. And uh, the opening scene happens. And the thing comes down, the hood comes down and it hurts the guy's hand. And, um, and the guy's you know, dies and the car falls out when they open the door. And I was scared, you know, crazy me, six year old. And and I walked out of the room and I remember like vividly my dad and my older brother, like coming to me in the hallway outside the TV room. I'd be like, yeah, you know, the car, it's like kit from Knight Rider. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> I could never watch Knight Rider again. But I will say, like to this day, Christine is a very special movie to me because yeah. of that experience. Right. <laughs> we just showed my daughter Child's Play for the first time because she has been talking about how she wants to dress up as Chucky for Halloween. And she saw a clip of it on TV. I was watching like the hundred scariest movie moments on shutter and they showed a clip from child's play and she seemed into it. So I was like, well, we can watch this whole movie if you want. Um, and she did okay with it. You know, she wasn't too freaked out by it. She had some questions about like, is that, is that person going to die? Is there going to be blood? It's like, no, no, it's okay. She falls out a window. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
Child's Play is good because it has a pretty low body count. I think only three people die and there's really no blood. Uh, yeah. So that one worked out for her. But watching The Gate, I was like, oh, this actually could be a really cool one to show them. Yeah. Well, it's so imaginative. I mean, I think when, you know, like I, I always talk about how I I wish I was older when I first saw some like Terminator, for instance. Yeah. Because when you're a kid and you watch it, at least, uh, you know, uh a, a pre-internet kid. I don't know. I like I said. I don't have kids, so I don't. I don't really know what children are like these days. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, like, I don't know what. Um, like when you're a kid and you see something like that, it's like, yeah, well, like you don't think anything. Or Star Wars, you know, like that's, you know, my imagination is that. Yeah, that's the way it should be. <laughs> Right. You know, you don't think that like, oh, this is groundbreaking. Like, so I, sometimes I wish I could have seen some of those movies as an adult, knowing that they were special. Right. Um, so I think something like The Gate is, is like is great for kids because it's like it does. There's nothing out of the ordinary of like there's a way to just like completely go along for the ride and not be like, oh, yeah, like that. You know, that dad, that uh, forced perspective effect is really interesting. <laughs> if one of my there's kids hope. says that to me, I'm doing something right. <laughs> but there's something to, there's like, you know, there's there's uh, a, that that kind of like hopefully that innocence and ignorance of uh, of those things still exist. I don't know how it's harder to 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 not show uh, what's going on behind the curtain right. uh, in today's day and age than it was when, when we were young, because they just, we just didn't have access to, to those kinds of things as much. Right. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's total. It's like a, just a really fun, imaginative ride, you know, about, uh, you know, Chucky's, you know, Chucky's that other example, you know, this uh, gate is, you know, parents aren't around. Child's play is like the parents don't believe him. You know, that's right, it's. Right, right, right. I always thought of Chucky's like the ultimate, you know, uh, Looney Tunes frog story. You know, like he's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like when you're not around, he can't somebody dances and sings. <laughs> I love the Child's Play though. We don't see any of that happen, like yeah. until the scene with the batteries or whatever, like Andy talks about, Oh, Chucky told me this and Chucky tells me this, but we don't actually see any of that happening until later in the movie. I don't know. That movie's great. Yeah. I'm a big fan of uh, that series, but especially the first one. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for talking about this movie with me and finally uh, getting me to watch it. It's only been, uh, you know, 35 years or something. So it's nice <laughs> that I finally caught up to the gate. I will say that, uh, I mean, you don't seem crazy about the gate, but uh, you'll probably be even less crazy about the gate Two trespassers. Oh, I forgot that they made a sequel to the gate. So, um, which I also, I remember renting as a kid in the early nineties because I had seen the gate, right. you know, several years before. And Terry is um, in it, right? It's about Terry's character. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's not, uh, it's an it, they take an interesting path, 
you know, in terms of the story to go into the second one, but um, unfortunately, it doesn't uh, doesn't have uh, doesn't have the magic that the gate has. Sure, but in, and it's Tibor again too. It looks like wow. yeah, and I think Michael Nannan wrote it. Or Nankin wrote it as well. The same writer. Wow, it's not streaming anywhere, so I won't be able to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Bummer. It has it has other familiar faces in terms okay. of actors, so you would get around. And you'd be like, "Oh, huh? They're in this." <laughs> Hopefully, they have crazy hair like Kelly Rowan. <laughs> but uh, thank you, man. This was a lot of fun. Yes, it was great. Thank you. Can you tell everybody where we can find more of your stuff and maybe remind everybody about the uh, Kickstarter campaign? Sure. Uh, I mean, you can always follow me on social media, things like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scored to Death. Uh, I've been doing Scored to Death. The podcast does exist, and I do have an uh, an episode. I I am way too late. It's taken me way too long to get around to edit. But there, so there will be another episode of that at some point. Uh, a fantastic interview with the composer David Shire. Um, but uh, you can also hear me on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I do a show there called Cinematic, uh, called Score to Death Radio, um, which I talk a little bit about film music and uh, I play a lot of music. It's, uh, although lately I've been kind of stuck in Italy and I've been doing the definitive audio documentary on the band Goblin. Nice. Um, at nauseum. People are probably sick of it at this point. But <laughs> <laughs> Five episodes in, um, nothing but goblin. And um, uh, uh, you kind of uh, mentioned that we've made a triumphal return of Saturday Night Movie sleepovers. We don't know um, how much, how many we will be doing. Um, we have some fantastic listeners and supporters, and uh, in in our two year absence, we're frequently asked to do more. So we came back and, and we've done a few for uh, for the listeners, uh, but we'll awesome. see if if we continue to do them or not. We we just don't know. Yeah. And uh, score to death. Uh, the books, of course, are available on Amazon, other big book retailers, or you can get them from me directly at scoretodeath.com. You can go to scoretodeath.com and subscribe to the mailing list to keep uh, up to date with the movie. And uh, like I said, if you're listening to this basically during the month of October and you're interested, you can support the movie on Kickstarter. Uh, the movie is called Score to Death, The Dark Art of Scary Movie Music. And uh, the hope is to make, you know, a, a really awesome documentary about the craft, celebrating the craft of films, of scoring horror films, but also the uh, the amazing composers and artists that do it. Very, very cool. I love horror movie music, as you know, so I'm I'm very excited about all of these projects. I still miss uh, Cuts from the Crypt, so I will be listening <laughs> to Scored to Death Radio for sure. Scored to Death Radio, they, it's it's veered off that the course, but the, the first bunch of episodes are very much in that vein. Okay. Very nice. Well, thanks again, Blake. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it.